Hello, friends. Welcome to the ATC Double Cut. I have Fraser Brown, the golf course superintendent at Lake Karen, Lake Karenup Golf uh, Country Lake Club, Karen. Lake Karenup Country Club, from Perth, Western Australia, on the show. Welcome, Fraser. Hi, Micah. Nice to be here. It is so good to be able to talk with you. I am fascinated with the climate of Perth and the challenges of growing grass there. The temperatures sometimes can get really hot, can't they? Yeah, definitely. It's, it's not uncommon for us to see high 30s, low 40s Celsius in the summer months. So definitely a challenge with our bank grass greens. Yeah, bank. So it's, uh, it's green cooch, uh, which yeah. Americans would know as uh, Bermuda grass. Bermuda. So you've got that on T's fairways, roughs? Correct. Yep. The wind and, bank grass greens. and then bank grass greens. All right. Well, we're going to get talking about that, but I'm going to set the stage with this being the ATC double cut. We're going to give a double cut treatment to one of the blog posts. Uh, and I'm going to introduce growing bent grass in tropical heat. And that's a post that I wrote a couple of years ago, and I'm going to put the direct link to that in the show notes. Fraser, this one uh, shows what the temperatures are in the summertime in Hiroshima, Japan, where it's also common to have bent grass greens. And the average temperatures in the middle of summer uh, are going to be up around uh, 30 degrees. So that means, what that means in the Japan context is it's going to be a high of about 33 and a low of about 27. There's not there's not a huge difference between morning and night um, in that location. And then I compared that to, um, to Singapore, for example. And th this is quite an interesting post for anyone who's dealing with growing bent grass in hot summers. And I showed for Singapore. Uh, in Singapore, the average temperature is rarely above 30. Um, the average temperature is usually about 26, 27, 28, 29 all year round. So it turns out that in Hiroshima, when the average temperature is above 30, which is typical to happen in August, uh, that's actually hotter than Singapore. Now, I looked up the temperatures for Perth, and I saw that there are some days in the summer in Perth where the average temperature is also above 30 degrees. Mm. And so that that to me says, wow, because I've seen what happens to bent grass in those kind of temperatures in Japan. In, and it's not good. And in Singapore, of course, they don't even try to grow bent grass in those kind of temperatures. And yet I've heard that the conditions that you're producing, and I know that the conditions that other golf course superintendents are producing in Perth with bent grass is pretty good. So could you talk to me a little bit about the temperatures that you see and, and then how the grass gets managed? Yeah, sure. Um, I think first thing I'd like to say is just how dry we are in Perth. I think that's a huge factor. So we, we do get our extremes. We're high thirties. We can have periods 40 degrees for two or three days in a row, um, but we're very dry. So not having the humidity makes a huge difference, I believe. Can you put a um, number, when you say dry, do you, um, 
like do you do you know those relative humidity numbers off the top of your head oh i'd say it would be sort of 30s that's in the daytime yeah in the daytime correct yeah so you'll still get dew at night usually yeah occasionally occasionally it'll be hit or miss so it does cool down a little bit overnight um but yeah i i think that's a huge difference um for us managing bent grass and that sort of heat you know for, for us it's it's all about um drought management drought stress okay so so uh that so the grass doesn't just melt away when it's hot uh no because it doesn't no. have that humidity that's so toxic like you'd have in in yes. singapore or in uh yeah. japan definitely and even even in the north of australia you know you go up into queensland you know, oh right yeah that's much more humid much more yeah it's correct and, and they, they're growing um warm season greens up there mm -hmm. so so sorry what what type of low temperatures what would be a typical day when you get the hot weather come in and it's 43 degrees in the mm -hmm. afternoon and then the next it's day the close. forecast is 42 what what type of low would you see that night typically be mid, mid to high 20s okay so you so the soil temperatures are maybe going to be staying up around 30 or above mm. yeah definitely and so it's not really ideal for creeping bent grass but no. the biggest problem that you would see would just be making sure that the grass has enough water in the root zone yeah correct uh, there's a couple of things we do um i like to i like to see it as, as windows and I try to get recovery as early as possible. So I know typically people would um, apply the irrigation early morning, mm -hmm. whereas I apply it early evening. So as soon as golf comes off the course, I try to get some moisture back in there so we can start the recovery period. So we're lowering the soil temperatures. We're starting to get moisture back into the plant uh, and that allows as long as possible to recover through the night. So I feel that disease pressure is a lot lower than moisture stress for me. Mm -hmm. So I'm willing to give that up. I'm willing to accept the the, the moisture there. I, the, yeah, I agree with you completely. In my mm -hmm. younger days, uh, I was all about like, don't irrigate before evening. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, you know, just wait until morning. So that, that yeah. supposedly the grass was supposed to be dry overnight and then I'd water it in the morning. And I look at it now and it's just like, I'm extending the time in which the grass is suffering from drought stress. It doesn't make any sense. And, Correct. And I'm also not allowing the soil to cool down. If, if I can mm. add some water prior to the evening, that is probably going to cool down the soil a little bit faster. And, and it takes advantage of having some water in the root zone during the time when the temperatures are a little bit lower. That's right. I mean, that, that's exactly how I see it. Um, and, and I was the same as you. It's only probably been the last three, four years that I've really fell onto that and really <laughs> believed in it. And <laughs> yeah, well, that that's excellent. Now, um, I I think some people listening, if they, if they don't know you already, they mm -hmm. may have noticed that uh, it's not a pure Australian accent that they're hearing. And, no. and they may notice a little bit of scottish there so yeah uh so you're coming from a place where where you grew up um that's a lot cooler than uh mm. than australia tell tell some people about how you got into this and how you ended up in australia 
Oh, it's quite an unusual journey, to be honest. Uh, as you say, um, totally different conditions. So I saw, I think as most people, I enjoyed golf and I enjoyed being around golf courses. So um, I got on and I did some um, summer work at a local golf course and then decided that was what I wanted to do. So and moved that's, on. That's in the highlands of, of uh, up, Scotland? Yeah. Right, so way up in the hills, way north in Scotland. So even colder than just normal Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> Way up on the hill so i would see snow outside my window for i don't know four or five months of the year um so yeah completely different climate so then i went off and i studied greenkeeping and then i joined my local club and stayed there for six years and then decided it was time to start road traveling a little bit and sort of get some new experiences so i kind of jumped in the deep end and ended up moving to kiev in ukraine mm-hmm. um, where they were constructing a championship golf course to an existing site they already had 18 holes and they wanted to build another championship 18 with the idea of hosting professional events so they hired a small team of um experienced european guys to go out and help them so that was that was an eye-opener in terms of culture and just different conditions you know that ukraine's a lot warmer than people would think it definitely gets the cold in winter but it's it's, it's hot through summer and um, so yeah a lot of new techniques uh, manager bent grass and, and that sort of heat out there as well mm-hmm. uh, yeah really exciting move to be honest you know it's something i always recommend people is take that gamble you know that was a in hindsight you know i'm not sure how rational that decision was but great decision yeah it's like me i i've ended up you know on the other side of the world from where i grew up in oregon and mm. uh it's it's been great for my career um mm. To, to have a chance to work in China, work in Japan before I went back to grad school and and then, you know, end up in Thailand. Uh, it's certainly, for people that are interested in uh, exploring all the opportunities, all the opportunities out there, uh, there's a lot of places you can work in the world and, and a lot of interesting things that you can learn about mm-hmm. turf grass. Yeah, definitely. And it's, we've got a great industry for traveling. I, uh, I'm going to be at the, uh, Australian open in a couple of weeks mm. and, uh, I'm going to be at the Australian and I saw in the, in the, the Australian turf managers association. Is that, is that what yeah. it's called now that they send out yeah. their, the cut weekly newsletter. And I saw yeah. that, uh, the, the edition from last Friday and it lists some of the staff at the Australian golf mm-hmm. club and kind of gives a profile of them. I was reading through that and there's a lot of people and that are from the UK. Mm. There's somebody from Canada. There's of course yeah. people from Australia, from Tasmania, from New Zealand, but that's a, looks like a very international greenkeeping crew that I'll be working with. So, yeah, so you eventually made your way down to Western Australia. You were working at a mine, yeah, well, big mining course or, or something weren't you right. i had a i had a little spell when i finished it um in kiev i had a little spell before i moved to australia and i went out and i helped uh, mark hooker at the out in bahrain oh that's, just for that's an event. right yeah you were in bahrain too yeah i went out there and just volunteered for a month just went out to help i was it was just after christmas and i wasn't ready to move out to australia quite yet so i did that so that was another great experience yeah it was it was great working with those guys out there and then yeah they got offered the job in western australia so as you say, it was out. This wasn't Perth. It was 600 kilometers from Perth out into the desert. It was a mining town um, with a big gold mine. 
and they built themselves the championship golf course. So it only just opened um, six months before I got there. So yeah, it was, it was <laughs> that was definitely an eye opener. Yeah. Wow. You know, yeah. So, do you have yeah. to, so there, there must be roads out to there or, or yeah. do, you, do you usually fly in or drive in? You, you can fly. It's about a six hour drive and a 45 minute flight. So you fly if you can. Mm-hmm. And was it even hotter there in, in, yeah. in the interior? Yeah, it's, so it's extremely hot, very dry. So they have dry winters there. So we get wet winters in Perth. Mm-hmm. They get very dry, so it's very dry up there. Generally, your rainfall will come from um, the sort of back end of cyclones that will hit the north. Mm-hmm. So normally it will be heavy downpours when you get it. And, and it's built on a clay soil, so that brings its own problems. So you're crying out for rain all the time, then you get too much rain. And did they have bank grass greens there also, or was that good? They had bent grass as well. Wow. So you go mm. so you go from Scotland. You go you go from being were you a head greenkeeper in Scotland or you were just no, uh no. you were Second like a, a two IC, something like that? Yeah. So you so you were an assistant superintendent mm. in Scotland. And then you go to work as a a two IC assistant superintendent in Kiev, right? Uh, well, no, not quite. It was we had a small um, construction team, I suppose it was called. We didn't really have that type of position. We were allocated different areas within the construction to to manage ourselves. Okay, so you're in a management role, but you you weren't yeah. the the top Correct. person. Yeah. And then you became a head greenkeeper or golf course superintendent in American uh, terminology. Mm-hmm at a desert course is that Kalgoorlie is that is yeah, that Kalgoorlie Kalgoorlie at a gold mining town 600 kilometers inland <laughs> from Perth in western Australia in a desert <laughs> with bent grass and it gets really hot in the summer what's the what's yeah. the hottest temperature while you were there uh to be high mid to high 40s probably mid to high 40s so um i'm going to i'm going to get on google here and figure out would we say like 47 would be about as high? Yeah, probably. So, yeah. So I'm going to look up what 47 Celsius is in Fahrenheit. And that's 117 degrees Fahrenheit. So it's, it's hot. Uh, mm. All right. So, wow, that was fast. So within like, like 18 months or two years, you'd gone from Scotland where yeah. I think there if it was 30 degrees people would consider it hot yeah to now you're yeah well, i think the record temperature where i live in scotland in, in history might be you know high 20s maybe 26 27 uh-huh. wow and and you'd be seeing lows above that for mm-hmm. for a yeah. lot of the time in the summer so yeah that's that's cool so you you got thrown right into the fire mm. to figure out how to keep yeah. so first you got to keep the bent grass alive I think, okay. and then you worry about managing the playability. So, yeah. uh, so then you moved over after what four or five years at Kalgoorlie? Uh, might have been six years in six years there, and then you came to Lake Karanup. Karanup, yep, which is one of the top yep. courses in Australia. Yeah, and I had a chance to visit there once in mm. 2017, and yeah, was, at that yeah. time we were just. Uh, getting going with the green 
Was it just a green renovation project? Mostly? Yeah, it was greens and greenside bunkers. We were just about to start on the front line when you were over. Mm -hmm. and, you, and you ended up choosing 007 creeping bent grass, right? Yeah. Which That's you right. seeded? Yeah, we seeded. Yeah, we seeded them. Okay. So on the, on the main 18-hole championship golf course, you've got 007 greens that the first ones were planted in 2017 mm -hmm. and the next ones were planted in 2018. 18. 18. So you've got uh, five, six-year-old grass on those greens? Yeah. yeah, that's right. So I want to talk a little bit now about like how, how you manage the grass to a high standard. Well, first, how you keep it alive. Second, how you manage it to mm -hmm. a high standard in those types of, of high temperatures. And if you do things like clipping volume, um, I'm, I'm interested in that also. So, uh, yeah, do you do clipping volume? Do you measure how much the grass is growing? No, not, not as scientifically as I should. You know, I'm still probably quite old-fashioned that in terms of going and looking at the guys as they're cutting the greens and seeing what they've got in their catchers rather than measuring it. Okay, good. Well, there's, there's an opportunity uh, mm. for me to sell you on that. I, I think it's, <laughs> it's, it's really useful, especially when we try to uh, – do things like fight against poa annua because growing the grass as slow as possible i think is going to favor bent grass over poa because I, yeah. I think you would know that too much water might lead to poa uh, too much fertilizer you would probably think could lead to poa and too much disruption is also going to favor poa mm. so i think right. that the clipping volume can be really useful because if we can minimize the clipping volume, minimize the above ground growth, then that means we're putting as little fertilizer and presumably as little water uh, as as possible, which can maybe favor bent grass over poa. And secondly, if the grass is growing relatively slowly, then it would seem that we don't have to do as much sand top dressing. We wouldn't have to do as much cultivation. We wouldn't have to do as much disruptive work that could uh, enable poa. So. You can certainly do it the old school way, but I mm. have found it's quite fun actually to look at how much the grass is actually growing. And I think it has the potential to to help with some of these things. I think you're right. And what you're describing there is exactly the programs that we were trying to run, but we're probably doing it without as scientific information as as we could get, you know, I'm looking at it saying, we're not getting a lot of grass off. We look at things like how quickly pitch marks recover to gauge the, the growth we've got. You know, it's the same old, you're, you're trying to produce enough growth to manage wear and tear pitch marks without anything above that. All right. Well, you must know how much nitrogen you put. Yeah, so the program, we set up a program at the start of year. I design a program. I spend a lot of time looking at MLSN. I look at uh, growth potential. I look at my experiences, what we've felt in the last um, the last year. And then we make a program and then generally I move away from that program once I have it. And I kind of look at what the conditions are and we're constantly making small changes, but we'll put out around about 180 to 200 kilograms a hectare per year of nitrogen. Okay. So that is uh, three point, about 3.6 or three, that's 3.8 to four pounds of nitrogen per thousand square feet for our American and Canadian friends. Okay. 
yeah so um and that that seems quite reasonable for perth for bent grass because it uh it doesn't get cold enough in the winter that the grass mm. really stops growing do you ever see frost in the winter or does it not quite get that very cold? rarely um, we won't see on greens we'll see on some bunker faces and things like that but but that's all okay so so you really don't get cold enough to see frost on bent grass greens and no. in the winter what would your growth rate be like as in terms of excuse me uh in terms of how often you would have to mow greens in the winter we mow greens every day even even through winter we do it as a, as a presentation it's something that members expect and um, we've got a busy members club and we've got members who play on a monday only on a monday so they expect to get the greens cut when they come so we cut greens every single day can't you just roll the greens potentially we we cut and roll so we cut every day and we roll a couple times a week or three times a week okay so so you, and in the summertime when it's when when you have all that heat stress going on are you are you mowing every day also we are yep we are I am, i'm also a big believer in consistency i feel that even in the stressful periods i feel if we can put some practice in place and and consistently mow, i i i feel that we're uh, we more consistent results i feel like missing a day and then mowing a day kind of gives us different results so i, I used to employ that in Kagruli. Um, a previous job but it was that little bit more extreme in terms of temperature and the dryness and the water quality and all those things so at Lake Carnup there's an expectation every day whether it's 40 degrees the members expect good greens so so that's one of my sort of non-negotiables we we mow every day so you're mowing 365 days a year basically we have a day off on Christmas okay 364 <laughs> days a year okay yeah. well that's that's nice. Do you do you keep the mowing height consistent all through the year, yeah. or do you do you adjust that? No, we keep it consistent. And what? So about uh, two, what is that? Two point seven five millimeters. Two point seven five. Yeah. Okay. So that is a bit less than an eighth of an inch for our American and Canadian friends. <laughs> so yeah, that and. And at 2.75 through the year, there's not a lot of space for sand. How often no. are you sand top dressing on on greens that it's are cut not, that short? Not quite as much as I'd like to. Um, with the way our seasons are, the spring and autumn are our prime growing seasons. Um, they're the times that I'd love to be putting more sand out. Unfortunately, it's prime also for golf through those periods. So we end up with a lot of club events on through there, which restricts when I can go on and do that. So um, definitely not putting out as much as I'd like. I would say we're probably maybe 15 applications a year, just light dusting. Okay. Do you have a Do you have a total amount on that sand? Um, no, it's not something I've I've measured to be honest. Okay. So 15, about 15 top dressings. Yeah. So you, you've got the, like the perfect growing weather. It looks like you're just coming into that kind of temperature mm. right now. Right. Um, and I was looking the growth potential looks like it peaks in late November and early December, mm -hmm. and then it gets too hot, way too yeah. hot. And the growth potential drops down. 
But this is a question I wanted to ask you. Mm -hmm. Um, As the growth potential drops down, because the temperatures are so hot, it doesn't mean the growth actually stops, does it? Doesn't the grass keeps growing fast, even even though it's hot, right? Correct. Yeah, and I, I feel like the the, pe- the periods in spring autumn where we do reach the peak, that's where we manage. It's almost um, we reduce our inputs at that stage and you know use primo. So we're trying to. It's almost too much growth at that stage when it's. So we're trying to rein that back a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like the greens perform best when they're when they're not growing to potential through those periods. Um, so then we we try to encourage a little bit more through those warmer months. Okay. And, and the, so the grass must grow a lot of roots in the spring and in the yeah. autumn. And do you notice the roots shrinking in the, definitely. Yeah. in the summer? Yeah, you do, you do definitely. I mean, those sort of heats, it's just a case of getting the, the grass, to, getting your, your turf to a um, healthy position where it will handle the summer. So you almost, you come into summer, it is what it is, what it is. you've done the work, then it's just, it's managing it damage limitation almost in some some situations yeah it's trying to keep it alive and hoping the summer isn't too long and that's what that's what i talk about in that blog post that that i showed earlier the one about growing bent grass in tropical heat is i feel like you have to take advantage of the times of the year when the temperatures are good for the grass to grow because the grass is slowly dying when the temperatures are so hot and of course you can have bent grass greens you could have good bent grass greens through some periods of heat, but you can't have it in Singapore. Even though Singapore, yeah. the hottest temperatures in Singapore are cooler than what you see. Yeah. And the reason is just the duration of it. Singapore has that supra optimal temperature day after day after day. Yeah. And what happens yeah. is bent grass will die. And what you're seeing, and anybody who's growing bent grass or cool season grass in these high temperatures, if it goes on for one month or two months or three months or maybe even four months, if you've got a good strong plant at the start of that period, you can survive it. But if you, yeah. but could you do that? Could you manage that for five, six, seven yeah, months? I, think so. I don't think, I think so. You'd be pushing it. No, I think you'd be pushing it at that stage. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I totally agree with what you've said there. It is. It's a case of getting yourself in that strong position coming into the summer months and then you just hope that it doesn't it's not too hot and it doesn't last for too long but you know it's outside your control yeah i i um i talk to people about the growth potential and the way that curve goes and some people say you know they just can't they can't wrap their head around fertilizing the grass at the time of the year when it's all already having the potential to grow well, you know, they, mm. they, they just think they just want to make it grow slower, make it grow slower at that time of year. And, and I can understand that, but if you, if you try to make the grass grow too slowly, if you restrict its growth too much at the times of the year, when it, at the only times of the year when it really has the potential to store carbohydrates and grow roots and stuff. If you restrict the growth too much at those times of year, you then you end up going into the summer with a weaker plant than you otherwise would have with less of a root system, with less carbohydrate stored than you otherwise would have. And that to me is a little bit risky. So, mm. um, 
that that's why I think, yeah, I definitely don't want the grass growing too much. And that's why I think my overall rate of nitrogen is important to consider, but I still want to feed it a a little bit at the times when the temperatures are perfect. Mm. Yeah, I agree. In our climate in Perth, we have uh, two challenging seasons being summer and winter and two challenge and two great seasons, spring and autumn. And we need spring and autumn to, to get the health back in the plant before it gets into the next challenging season. So for us, winter's as hard, if not harder than summer. And and is that hard because you've got a lot of traffic, but yeah. but the grass isn't isn't able to grow as fast as you might need it to? Right. Yeah, so we're very consistent in terms of uh, rounds of golf, so actual traffic on the course, but we have our uh, golf season through the winter months here. So the expectation's high. So our club championships and the major club events are all through the, the cooler months. So expectation's high. The growth potential drops way down. So we're not seeing recovery. Still the same amount of traffic. Um, you know, we got shade. And also in Perth, we get, I'll say, 70% of our annual rainfall through like a 16-week period. So the greens are wet. You know, they're, they're, the greens potential can be wet. So And yeah, so the... The greens could be wet. The growth, the temperatures are going to be like an average of like 10, 12, 14, something like that. So your growth potential is going to be 50% or below generally Mm. in the winter. And, and the grass is, is green. It's growing. It's getting cut every day, but it's not recovering as quickly as it might otherwise. And it doesn't play well, you know, and that's, that's where the members get happy. (laughs) Yeah. So so you you must have quite a bit of poa annua pressure if it's if you've got most of your annual rainfall happening in in a short period and you've got temperatures that are just ideal for poa mm. um what what type of pressure do you see and do you have much poa in the greens right now uh not a lot um but it's something we've really focused on it was something right from the start um, we discussed, you know, building new greens, what, what do we want to get out of them? What, what's the aims? Rather than just building greens and see what it takes us, what's the sort of the KPIs? What do we see as successful greens? And being close to POA3 was one of them, um, which, as, as you say, is a challenge in our climate. There's no getting away from that. Um, we always expect POA to get into our greens. Um, we'd be the only greens ever built in WA not to get that, I believe so. Um, but we've got some programs in place that help us manage that. So to start off with new greens, we just went through the processes, keep them nice, keep nice density in there. We're trying not to be too disruptive. Um, trying to make sure there was nowhere for Poa to get in there. Trying to, everything we were doing was to favor the bent grass. So trying to keep low fertility where possible, low moisture, everything we could to give the bent grass a competitive advantage. Um, over time, we've started to see that phase move out you know so Poa is starting to get in regardless of that um but i'm really lucky at the club i'm at we've got a lot of great members who are willing to give up a lot of their time to help us on the course so i've actually got a little group who come in every single monday throughout the year 52 weeks a year and they come in monday morning and that's some of the guys at the club captains presidents committee members just other members as well it's a great group and they come in there and they actually dab Poa. they walk the greens mm-hmm they dab poa using poa cure okay so the idea was instead of blanket spraying it we just go out there and we just dab it and they keep on top of it and they've been doing that for about oh probably four years now 
very effective. Um, but we feel like we've got to the stage that we need to move up a stage. So we've we're now um, applying POA here as a blanket spray. Okay. Um, to, to nine greens a year, we're still. I would say we're oh, under one percent. But it's something that we're aware of. We don't want it. We don't want it to get away from us. The members are extremely happy just now, so let's maintain it right now rather than allowing it to become a problem. Good. And uh, I suppose you you mentioned minimizing disruption. You mentioned fifteen top dressings per year. Since you put these new greens in, mm-hmm. um, what type of cultivation in terms of? Uh, core hollow tine aerification or solid tine aerification or venting uh, or other uh, cultural practices that yeah. break the surface what has been done and and how does that transition to what you're doing now it's been a big transition for me to be honest uh, so when we started the the greens first year didn't do any cultivation and with being new greens and then we started hollow coring from there um, once a year and then moved into twice a year um and that was fine. The The members were really happy with the greens. I was quite happy with the conditions we're producing. But I wanted to know, is there a better way? Was there a way that I could achieve the same results for longer without disrupting the members as well? I started looking at dis- different methods. Um, you know, we would solid tine all through winter, for example, which for me was surface drainage. It was essential. It had to happen. Same as hollow coring in autumn had to happen. Otherwise, we wouldn't survive through those periods. But Actually, I'm not, I, I become, became less and less convinced that that was the case. Um, and I managed to speak to the club and they backed me and we invested in some dry jets. Mm-hmm. We've actually replaced our hollow coring with dry jets now. Okay, wow. Um, so you've, got your, you've mm-hmm. got your own dry jet machines. We do, yeah. We've got two of them here. Wow, nice. Mm. And that's changed. That's made such a difference to our whole, whole philosophy, to be honest. Um, it wasn't just the week that you did the renovation. It was, you know, after a renovation, I would say there's another three weeks after that before the greens really got back to to good playing conditions. So, you know, you do that twice a year, which we were. There's eight weeks of the year that I felt the greens weren't good enough. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whether they were sandy, they were excessively grown because of the extra fertilizer we're applying. Plus, we would we would apply fertilizer before the process to allow quick recovery. So, you know, there could be forty kilos of n per hectare just just in that application. Yeah, which it kind just of defeats the purpose if if you're doing that to right. help manage the organic matter, and you right. you produce a lot of uh, of growth from from that rate of n. So I started I started thinking about it, and if. I did my calculations and using the times that I was using the spacings, I was affecting say eight percent of the surface area. Yeah, I was over fertilizing, over watering ninety-two percent of the of the surface. And I started thinking, I don't know if this makes a lot of sense. Is there a way that I could not put the not required to put the same inputs into that ninety-two percent and still manage my organic matter to keep them nice and firm? So I started doing a lot of research into different different things and I, and I got in touch with Dryject and worked through some numbers with them and yeah I, I was sold and given it a go so I convinced the club and the club are all for it wow. um so yeah we're 18 months in we haven't we haven't hold gored in 18 months coming up two years I suppose um and the members have never been happier with great consistency we actually um released an annual report to the members 
um, last week. So every year, the office bearers of the club, so the board, um, write a, an annual report for the members. So I got three mentions in there for the condition of the course, and the drag jet got four. So. <laughs> well, that's that's great. Wow. It's, mm. it's nice when a, a decision like that uh, can work out so well. And yeah, that's terrific. And it's nice the club could invest in those. I, I don't know that... Definitely. I don't know that there's a lot of clubs that have their own machines. Do you no. Do you have any intention or, or have people contacted you about wanting to <laughs> use the machines, uh, you know, kind it's of contracting <laughs> it out like, like dry jack typically is done? Yeah, they have. The, the club are uh, a bit reluctant to let the machines out. Um, the, the club's babies, so they, <laughs> the club want to keep them. But there, there has been a lot of interest um, of guys from over east. Um, so we've actually got people coming to have a look in November when we next do it, end of this month. Um, the local um, sports arena, the stadium here, they've invested in their own one as well. So there's now three in Perth. Wow. How, how so many are there in Australia? Three. <laughs> Oh wow, that's that's a big potential market for Dryject. I know mm. it's it's pretty big in in parts of the United States and it's uh, yeah. Canada and and in Europe. I know the uh, the contractors in Europe with Dryject. I think they're pretty much booked mm. all through the year because yeah. it's people like to put that sand right into the root zone and leave the surface pretty nice and and that machine yeah. seems like it can accomplish that pretty well yeah the other um, major factor that i i saw the club on was that um as i said before we've got two really stressful periods of the year being summer and winter spring and autumn are peak golfing conditions but also peak growing conditions so we have to do for, for me we have to do renovations in those periods Mm -hmm. um, so we were losing those eight weeks I'm talking about before for um, hollow coding. That was coming out of prime golf season, those eight weeks. So now what we've done is we've pulled them back. So we dry jacked uh, three applications a year, three runs a year, two in November and one in the, the end of January. So we do it through our summer because the stress that I was trying to avoid was pulling the cores off, top dressing, getting the sand back down the holes, rubbing the sand, rubbing the greens. So we now, because we don't do those processes, we've now pulled that back into the summer months. So the idea is that members from opening day to closing day, there's no major disruption on the greens. That's nice. And do you, mm. do, you, um, do you eliminate that extra fertilizer that you'd been applying? Right. Yeah. So, so we'll, depending on what condition the greens are at and coming into that process, like we've actually just put a, a light granule out today um, ahead of that work in two weeks time but nowhere near what we put out previously and um, in previous times where the greens have been nice and healthy and growing well we haven't applied any extra we just ran as a normal maintenance program straight through so the, the members have been really happy with that um, the the day after the work the greens look like look like they've been cored but they play nice and true smooth and true so we blow the greens off give them a roll and that's them back in play same day that's 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 wonderful. That's cool. Mm. Um, do you have do you have kangaroos that live on the property? We do, yeah. So we've got about uh, I'd say we've got two hundred now. So the numbers have definitely up in my time there. Yeah. Um, do they? Yeah, no, I, I think it's a great thing for the club. I, I like, they don't do a lot of damage. Some some courses, even in our state, have had damage from greens and bunkers and 
turf surfaces um, through the kangaroos. We're fortunate we haven't. So for me, I think it's great. If you get some, you know, if you were coming to play golf at Lake Canop, yeah, you'd love to be playing around a Western Australian golf course and seeing kangaroos jumping past. Yeah, I was looking at the pictures of my visit, and half the pictures were ones that I'd snapped of of yeah. kangaroos that I saw on yeah. on the course, and yeah, not just like an isolated one, but like 10, 10 of them in mm. a fairway or something. It's it's pretty cool. Now, what if they're out in the fairway in the landing zone, and I'm on the tee? It it would seem we that just, you just we play. You just fire away. Yeah, do it. Yeah. Do yeah. do they ever get hit with a ball and? Uh, occasionally, occasionally there's not a lot we can do about that though yeah. um so we we just yeah it is what it is kind of situation it's, it's very rare to be honest that we have any sort of injury <laughs> good yeah <laughs> that's uh, uh i'm glad they don't damage the greens i i know if i was yeah. if i was involved in the uh renovation project and planting the new seed i would have been terrified about uh footprints and and uh mm -hmm activities from kangaroos on the greens but yeah definitely. it's definitely a worry and we definitely through that process of course before the grass is established yeah you, you do you get footprints every day mm -hmm. yeah i i've got another question that i never really know how to answer uh when it gets really hot um you you mentioned using growth regulators i suppose primo trinex back yeah, ethyl is that the main yeah. one that you would use yeah. And, and I can understand using that for growth suppression in when, you know, in the spring and autumn, when you have those temperatures where it's 42 degrees and 25 at night, uh, do you find that you, it works well to continue using growth regulators or would you typically get off of them? No, I, I do. I, I stay through Primo. I stay on Primo all the way through the summer months. It's only I, I stop using it through winter, but I, I use it for the rest of the year. Um, I just find that um, it keeps it a little bit more sustainable. You know, through that stressful period, I don't want my uh, I don't want my greens actively growing too much. Mm -hmm. So it just keeps it sustainable. You know, keeps uh, keeps it from sort of using excessive energy, I suppose, and mm -hmm. leaf growth that I don't really need. Okay, and so you keep regular rates, and you. Uh, put it on a calendar schedule or yeah, growing degree days schedule. Degrees. Okay, so you you have to apply every week or so. Right. Yeah. When when the temperatures are hot like that. Yeah, it is. It's weekly. Yeah. Okay, and do you use preventative fungicides through the summer? Um, not a lot, to be honest. Um, no, we actually don't have a, a huge um, fungicide uh, bill here. Okay. Um, um, and is that because you you're managing the water well, so you don't have to worry about pythium so much? Correct. And you've got 007, which is relatively resistant to a lot of diseases compared with older generations of bent. Correct. So what we felt was um, that when we put the new greens in, it was a clean slate. Mm -hmm. Instead of going back to old programs, let's start again and, and be a little bit more reactive. You know, what with the new grass, new profile, what are we what are we getting, what are we not getting, what what's the pressure, mm -hmm. what time of year? So we've decided to be a little bit more um um reactive rather than um um proactive on that. I've got a blog post about that also for okay. for uh for anyone uh who's interested. Uh I'll put a I'll put a link to that one also, um, which is not specifically about fungicides, but 
Um, it's just about being reactive uh, in general and not thinking of reactive as a bad word and not thinking of proactive as being the only way to manage. Because I think we have our idea in our mind that proactive is the way to be. Yeah. Um, but because the weather changes, if, if you're proactive, you always end up growing the grass a little bit too fast because you're like putting fertilizer, planting the sanding, all of these yeah. things that then requires a faster growth rate. Um, and so then you have to do a lot of mowing, a lot of work to produce a good surface when it may be better, I think, to use our modern technology and just be a little bit reactive to how the grass conditions actually are. I, I think we can be more efficient that way and, and maybe produce better conditions. I think so. I think that that sort of hybrid system, like I spoke to you earlier, um, where I have my I have my programs and they're there in the, in the back of my head. I, I know what they are, but I'm still, I tend to be reactive yeah, in terms of, it's on paper, but is that the right thing to do? Mm-hmm. Have a look at you know, and I'll and I'll change. I'll constantly change. Yeah, that that's what I recommend too. I I write on my blog and I explain in seminars about a lot of ways to plan things. You know, plan using the growth potential. You can plan how much nitrogen the grass could use on a daily basis, weekly basis, monthly basis through the year. And I can plan what I expect my clipping volume to be all through the year. I could plan how much the grass may grow, how much potassium it could use, all of these things, how much sand top dressing may be required at any particular time of the year. I can predict that, but that's not actually how I manage. I just make that plan and I get started doing that plan and then I measure the grass response and then I throw the plan away and yeah. I react to how the grass is actually responding. That's yeah. that's how I I think of managing. And I think you're right, and I think you you need both. I think one without the other doesn't work. I think you can't be totally reactive without a plan, and I don't think you can have a plan and not react. Yeah, yeah. Uh, having a plan and not reacting is uh, is a guarantee to have very average conditions. Um, yeah, and. And I've always told people like you could use a growth potential type of plan and we could just make a plan and I guarantee you'll have mediocre conditions, mm. but that, that that's not what anybody, not, not many no. people are striving exactly. to be mediocre. Correct. Mm, exactly. <laughs> now you've got, you've got a, a nine hole course or a, a shorter yeah. course that you call, yeah. what is that one? The North course? North, North course, correct. Yep, North course. And and that one has older greens, Pen A4, right? Or It's got a mix. Um, it's got Pen Cross. It's got uh, a G6. Oh, and right. It's got a hybrid green where they did a quadrant where they did um, A1, A4, G2, and G6. Oh, wow. As a trial before they did the main course. Cool. So you've got, you've got a 1956 era grass, and then you've got... Mm some 1990s era grasses and of course the root zones will be a little bit different too but i just wondered if you notice a difference in how the 007 performs to how these ones perform uh these yeah, other varieties in the in the heat or or at any time of year really it's quite interesting because the the pen cross has obviously a lot of flaws in terms of the leaf, you know, the, the coarseness, the the open nature, so you get poa through there, but it handles heat extremely well. 
um, the A's and the, the G's on the, the our fifth green tends to struggle quite a bit in the heat, more so than the pink cross does. Um, out on the main course, we obviously maintain them a bit more intensely, but it feels like it's a bit of a hybrid between the two. You get your you get your density and your fine leaf, but but we're seeing excellent heat tolerance. It's we've commented on the double seven on the greens. We've got in our experience, almost feels like it enjoys the heat. You know, it really you push it right to the edge, and it seems to seems to love it. It seems to be when it's happiest right on that edge. I'm glad. I'm glad is work. It is working out like that. Um, that that is good. Um, and and let's see. So so you manage the poa with a bit of poa cure. Yeah. And you're dry jacking, so you're not. Do you verticut at all? Rarely. If I think if I think it's required, I will. But I don't program to to do it. And you're trying to keep the growth low enough that you. That, we don't need that you don't need to yeah. Yeah. yeah i've been i've been so surprised with what chris tritabaugh has been doing um if you've read his Substack newsletter or listened to a couple of his podcasts you'll yeah. you'll see that he's eliminated the in-season top dressing um so he, so he's going like four or five months without top dressing for the last few summers and i never thought that that was possible i always thought that within three four five weeks uh that you'd end up with puffy surfaces and i've just been shocked that you know he he can put sand in november and then it's covered in snow all winter and then there's a bit of sand on the surface in april may or maybe april uh and then you know june july august you've got good growing weather and yet the grass doesn't get puffy so I see you're, you know, you're doing the 15, uh, you're doing the 15 dustings per year, plus the three dry jacks. It would seem that, that you'd want to do more, but maybe that's also like, like some, some, I don't know, the old way that we used to think maybe the yeah. bank, maybe the bank grass doesn't need the sand like we always thought it did. I, I think you could be right, you know, because I haven't done it by design like Chris has. You know, as I said earlier, we've got club events that have restricted when I can dust and when, and when I can't. So um, we go through that same sort of periods where we don't get sand out, you know. So when I say 15, that could be five weeks in a row, a certain time of year, and then, you know, three months without. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I'm not always convinced that after three months I look at it and think it really needs more sand. It could be one of those things that's still in my head. It's embedded. It's, that's what and that's what should happen. Yeah, I, I, I certainly had it embedded in my head, and I've re, I've, I've been giving seminars about how I recommend doing organic matter management now, and I've looked at some of my old slides. As recently as 2014, I was basically recommending to put as much sand as you can, like, mm. like, like a lot you know 250 kilograms per uh or sorry uh maybe 250 tons per hectare something like that um just just really large amounts of sand Mm. uh that i don't i don't think are necessary anymore so now i'm recommending like one fourth one third 
of what I used yeah. to just yeah. as a plan. But of course you, you throw the plan away once you get started. Um, yeah. and yeah, it's, it's been a surprise for me over the past 10 years to realize that maybe the grass doesn't need quite so much. Yeah, it feels like we've gone through a, a whole cycle from, you know, what course maintenance, what greens maintenance used to be, you know, 50, 60 years ago. And as more products become available, you know, we start putting more in and then we've had to be more aggressive with our cultivation and then maybe dialing both back mm -hmm. is the answer. Yeah. Well, there are, there are lots of opportunities for us to continue learning and, uh, and continuing to try to optimize conditions. How often mm. do you measure the green speed and uh, other assessments of, of green quality? We take um, firmness and um, speed um, stimp every Friday, but that's just, it's an internal. We don't release that to the club or members. It's just for us to see what we've done in the previous week and how it affect, affects the playability. Um, so the firmness is the one that we really focus on. The, the speed's always the interesting one to have amongst the guys on a Friday, but the firmness is the one that we're really focusing on. It's important for us. And are you using a Clegg or a, a uh, uh, true not firm? A true firm. Okay. Yeah. The one from Spectrum? Correct, yeah. And you, when you do the dry jack, does it make the greens firmer or do they just stay the same? Uh, firmer. Okay. So, yeah. So, uh, and and the in terms of playability, if I hit a seven iron from the middle of the fairway, that should stop on the green, right? Yeah. Like I don't have to and be a pro to. We we have times of the year that they get pretty bouncy. You know, not not Richard at Royal Melbourne bouncy, but uh, it's still pretty bouncy. So so that's and the members would like it if yeah if it, they do. I think what's in our favor is that um, the conditions line up for us to do that maybe four to six weekends a year. I think that's about enough. <laughs> I don't think we want that every week. <laughs> you mean when you can get it that dry? Yeah. Okay. When we can get it. So it's it's about trying to get it that dry where the temperatures haven't got so so high yet. Mm -hmm. You know, So it's, it's sustainable to keep it at a low um, moisture level. Once we get into summer, you just can't run with that level of moisture because they'll be gone by the afternoon. How big of a maintenance team do you have? Um, we've got 17 and a half um, full-time equivalents. And 17 and a half from, are they from all over the world or most yeah. Australian? Um, yep. So there's three of us from Scotland. We've got wow. one from England. Yeah, I know. Yeah. We've got one from England. We've got one from Slovenia, one from Finland. Um, don't think the rest is showing. Cool. Well, th yeah, that that must be fun to work with people from from all over the world and yeah, yeah people interested in different different sports or different uh, leagues, different teams. Mm. You I mean, even just different experiences, different golf courses. You know, like we talked about earlier about the experiences you gain from going to different countries and and working there. You know, we've got that with a number of different people. Yeah, that's 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 good. Um, mm about the irrigation management or the soil moisture management are you using uh the pogo or a tdr or anything Pogo. so we we pogo okay we pogo. two of them yeah. do you have a couple of them that go out yeah we get two of them yeah and so tell me a typical like how many staff 
and what the procedure would be if it's January 15th and you've just had a 38 degree high and a 24 degree low and and the greens have the soil moisture just the way you want it and tomorrow the four and and let's say you've got the next three days are forecasted to be 42 for a high and and 26 for a low so what's going to happen in terms of overhead irrigation or hand watering and and the pogos and how many people are involved I mean, generally it'll be one to two guys. Um, we like to sort of give them the responsibility, the ownership of that. So it'd be um, my irrigation tech would would head that up. Um, so he'd pogo. We'd work out where we're at with the numbers. Um, through the through the summer months, we will use the overhead irrigation every night, basically. But it's about trying to keep it so we're watering for the for the wettest areas for the for the highest water volume, and then we'll all do a lot of hand watering, hand watering mounds. And you learn the greens. You 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 know what it's like. You one of the things that we have in our favour in the Perth summer is it's very consistent. You know, very consistent weather. So you're able to look at it as you said. This day you do a pogo. You know where you are. You hand water. You you pretty good idea of what you're going to get in the next two, three, four days as you keep going. So the consistency is definitely key for us. And and so it's just the the irrigation tech and a couple of staff. Yeah. So. And they'll, yeah. So you're running the overheads, and then you'll go so around we'll and get the like dry spots. Eighty percent of ET. So we we had to get off ET. So we'll go seventy to eighty percent, and then we'll go around and we'll pogo and hand water as required. And and what type of soil water percentage are you trying to keep? What I mean, what works well at at your site? Start in the peak of summer. You, I would say twenty-one, twenty-two is a good, a good number to get us through the day. And what will um, what will it drop to on a hot, windy day? Eight, nine. So it goes all the way, all the way. Yeah. And your ETs would be seven, eight. Yeah, we get mid sevens. That's that's in millimeters. So um, no. that's that's uh, about point three inches. Um, so a substantial a substantial amount of et so the yeah. so, so you you try to irrigate to to 80 percent of et yeah so that's your crop coefficient oh yeah. nice uh do you have an on-site weather station or are you using something do, from yeah. the government we got an on-site weather station the other thing we try to do is we um we take every week in summer and we try to split it into two different into two small blocks so we've got our busiest members day is a Wednesday and then a Saturday. So we try to peak for those days. So we'll we'll do a recovery. A bit more irrigation probably goes out on a Saturday night, start the recovery process. Sunday coming into Monday, and then by Tuesday, we're trying to turn the dial again and push them for, for Wednesday. The aim on a perfect, a perfect run scenario is that we start to see footprints from wilt the last maybe two or three groups on a Wednesday and a Saturday, yeah. if we get a bang on. That's what we're aiming for. That that would be perfect. That would would be perfect. Um, the let's see, I had something that was on a similar topic. Hmm. I'm drawing a, I'm drawing a blank. Well, 
<laughs> I forgot what I was going to ask. Um, <clears throat> the uh, the playing conditions that you produce, uh, you don't measure the bobble test, do you? You've heard you've heard me talk about the bobble test. Have, yeah, I have. I've done that in the past, but it's not something we do anymore. I I think Probably. it's I think Sorry. it's it's interesting to do because it it looks at uh at the same thing that the golfers see right because mm. because it's like just the speed of course they feel that but what they're they're also looking at whether the ball bounces or darts offline and i always right. assume that simply stimp meeting stimp you know measuring the stimp was enough um but then it turned out i, I was measuring at some courses and i realized it wasn't at those places yeah. because they weren't watching the quality of the role but I, mm. I know that you're looking at the quality of the role, so. We are, we just we just don't do it as scientifically, I suppose, as the bubble test. Um, but yeah, what you said there, that's exactly what's, what the mindset was, was it's easy to get tied up in the, think about it as turf, mm -hmm. you know, and I wanna go back and think about it's not, it's a, it's a putting surface, that's what I'm doing. Yeah. You know, it's, I'm, not, I'm not growing lawn, I'm growing, I'm managing a putting surface. So it's, it's like you're saying, if that's how the golfers measure it, they decide whether I'm doing a good job or not. Yeah. I, so these are the sort of numbers that we need to look at. Yeah. I, and I think like, because if we're concerned about the greens getting too soft, if they're too soft, then when the ball rolls across it, it's going to hit more little bumps, footprints or, yeah. or pitch marks or whatever. Um, and I, I kind of like the bobble test. If you are stimping every Friday, uh, and recording that for your own use. I, I, I have enjoyed the time series of bobble, uh, data, uh, to, mm. to confirm that the quality of the tracking of the ball is, is what we're trying to achieve. And if you're doing those 15 top dressing events approximately per year, you can check if, if that is, if the week that you do that, if that improves the role, uh, yeah. or if it or if it deteriorates yeah true and then you can start to look at your numbers and you know if i feel like it's that's the quantity of sand i need do i go heavier mm -hmm. less frequent or do i need that sand at all yeah start making those decisions yeah I, i'm very anti-data i i i'm a very slow adopter of a lot of these things i'm i I've been aware of a lot of things that we could measure, but I just said, I don't want to spend my time doing that because I always yeah. thought there's other things that we could spend our time doing. Yeah. But the bobble test now and the clipping volume, those are two that I now think are worth the time. Um, and I always encourage people to do it. So I'm, I'm glad that you're aware of these things and maybe you can yeah. consider whether maybe next winter you can think about that and say, maybe that's something yeah. you can add on to. Maybe that's plan. the next step. I'm probably a little bit like what you just said. I'm aware of them and I, I probably see value, but I think, oh, there's other things I could be doing. Yeah, you know, exactly. but maybe, maybe this is the next step. Maybe exactly. this is the next step. Yeah, I see some people I see some people get so into the data and then I think, man, you you're too into the data. You need to just look at the grass and do mm -hmm. the work. Um so yeah, it's it's interesting. Uh to see yeah what what the best way and, and the most efficient way to use these data could be because um, you can certainly you can certainly do a good job without it but i think mm. it can be a nice tool 
to to have some of these things. Uh, I did remember what I was going to ask you. Yes. Uh, syringing in the hot afternoons for the purposes of cooling the grass down. Um, that, I, I rarely do it. You rarely do it. Rarely do it. Under what conditions would you think it's necessary? I suppose, as we discussed earlier about um, that window, you know, where we start to recover. So I generally will irrigate after the golf finishes. If I feel like we're struggling to get there, it might be a, a case where we go out, we do a bit of uh, syringing. But it comes back to if, if we've if we've done our jobs right, I don't want to be doing that. So you know, I, I feel like it takes away from the members' experience. And are you are you trying to cool the grass down by like putting a mist over it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Is it common in Australia to do that? Do you do you know? No, usually it was something I used to use in Kalgoorlie. Um, again, it was just that next level of heat. It was just that little bit more extreme, and it's just that little bit tougher to keep bent grass alive out there. Mm -hmm. I used to do it um, quite frequently in Kalgoorlie, um, but I feel like I feel like we don't need to at this stage. Um, it kind of so we we intentionally try not to do it. And, yeah, and we, you're trying to keep it as dry as possible uh, right. around the foliage, right? Yeah. And I think sometimes you can get a little bit too um, reliant on it. And every time that you think, well, there's a, something's, you know, it's not quite right. I'll just, I'll give it a syringe. I'll give it a syringe. Before you know it, you're starting to apply more moisture than what you probably want to as well. Yeah. I, so we, we try to, we try to stay quite strict on that. If it needs to happen, it needs to happen, but it's not something we plan on. It's something that I used to do uh, a lot when I was younger, and now I think it, it's not necessary. And so mm -hmm. I think if the grass is dry, the best time to apply water is right now. It's it's not to wait until tomorrow morning. So if it's yeah. if it's one p.m., if it's two p.m. and it's hot, and but if the grass is dry and needs water, syringing isn't really going to help it. It's not going to solve mm -hmm. the problem. You could just yeah. put water and syringing does cool down the surface for a couple of minutes. But yeah, but if it's going to be back up to the same high temperature 10 minutes after you've done it, then I'm not sure it's it's beneficial to cool down the leaf for only two minutes. So I've, I've changed my thinking about syringing. Yeah. Yeah. Same with me. You know, I, I swore by it in my last job and yeah. Here, I don't feel like it's required. I don't see the, I don't think we get the benefit from it. Nice. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad to hear that you uh, learn what works and you observe what works and then you're able to update the way that you do the work. And uh, mm. I have done much of the same thing. So you, I guess in the summer there's beaches, there's surfing, there's nice things to do down there. Uh, yeah. Are you guys, you're, so you're not the the crew doesn't have to work uh 14 hour days or anything or do, no. do some people no, no no so uh typically well, we work 38 hour weeks here 38 38 yep okay. and then uh, rostered rostered overtime the weekends so uh, the guys it's good work-life balance in australia and uh, that's kind of expected you wouldn't there's not many industries in australia now that that's not the typical sort of scenario so you so you're managing bank grass and the, so you're managing bent grass greens where the temperatures sometimes are going to be highs in the forties and, and you're able to have the whole crew, uh, go home at 3 PM. Yeah. 
2 p.m. normally. 2 p.m. And so nobody has to stay behind and, and check for dry spots. So no, that's awesome. And you're, and you're not stressing about it either. You're not, no. you're not going home I mean, and being like, Oh, I, I got to go back to the course. And yeah. Yeah. Look, I, I lived on the golf course at, at Lake Karen up for uh, the first five years that I was there and I would every night and I didn't need to, I knew I didn't need to, mm -hmm. but I would be out every night in summer. Yeah, driving around, checking the greens, um, syringing greens occasionally, and I, I think it was more about making me feel like I was, I was on top of it. Mm -hmm. um, I, I no longer live on the course, and yeah, I go into go in on the evenings a lot less now, and we haven't seen any improvement or a negative effect on the greens. It turns out that actually what I was doing made no impact at all. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, that. That is terrific. I, I'm glad that you get those kind of results with those greens. And I, and I know you're producing greens that are at a, a very high standard. So that that's good. I, I hope I can have a chance to visit Perth again sometime and, and see the turf and kangaroos there and see you and, and see maybe some of the other turf grass in the area. I see. Yeah. Yeah. Um, things have changed a little bit since you were last year. So it'd be good yeah. to have you back. Very good. All right, Fraser. Well, thank you so much. We've uh, talked for even longer than I expected. Just talking about bent grass management, uh, which for me is an endless, uh, it's a topic of endless fascination, especially when you get into these places where, you know, I've never really, I've, I've never managed bent grass for play in that kind of condition. I, 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 I actually got into turfgrass science. I decided that I wanted to be a, to, I, I decided I wanted to get a PhD and go to graduate school and learn everything I could about turfgrass at university. Uh, when I was working at uh, Desert Mountain in Scottsdale, Arizona in, uh, in the summer of 1995, and we were planting uh, dominant bent grass Yep. we were planting that from seed in june july august in the desert when the temperatures were over 40 every single day and it was growing and and thriving and i had come from oregon which is a much more clement type of climate for cool season grass and i was i was just like wow i i don't understand how this is possible so i've yeah, I ever right, since yeah. then i've been fascinated with how bent grass can perform in really high heat when i was a mm. golf course superintendent that was in shanghai which has really high heat in in the summer and also near tokyo which has some pretty high temperatures in summer and and of course shanghai and and japan have a lot of humidity also yeah um so to see uh, what you're doing, to be aware of what you're doing there in Perth and, and to see those temperatures, uh, it's always on my mind, like how, how do they grow the grass there? So thank you for answering so many of my questions. I hope this will be interesting to some of the people who listen to the show or who watch the show. And for anybody who's interested, uh, do check out that growing bent grass in tropical heat for more about that. And that, that blog post, which I'll put a link to, um, also has a picture of some of the pencross that I planted in Bangkok. So yeah, you people can see that you could yeah. grow bent grass in Bangkok 
But when you cut it, <laughs> once, once you trim it, when you mow it and you take the carbohydrates away, it eventually dies in this kind of heat, which it's, yeah, it's, you, you know that, which is why you keep it from growing yeah. too fast. Yeah, correct. All right. Well, that's my long-winded way of getting ready for us to say goodbye. So uh, anything else before we go, Fraser? No, I don't think so. I think we've covered most things there. All right. Um, can Is that excellent article that, about you, that profile of you that was in the Australian uh, Turf Management magazine, um, yep. is that available online? Is that... Um... I'm not sure. I can look into that. I can send you a, send you a link or a copy of it. I mean, I've got a copy of it, which I could post, or we can just direct people if it's available on the website of the uh, the ASTMA. Um, maybe we could send that link. But yeah, I'll yeah. see. If for anybody who's interested, Fraser's had a very interesting career, and there's an excellent profile of him uh, recently from the what's the magazine called? Um, it's the ATM, I think it is. Yeah, Australian Turfgrass Management, something like yeah. that. It's the it's the publication of the formerly the the Superintendents Association. Now it's the Sports Turf Managers Correct. Association. Association yeah. um, Correct. And uh, anyway, we'll we'll see if we can make that available for people who are interested because uh, you've got a lot of insight about working around the world. So, mm. all right. Well, thanks everyone for watching for listening thanks fraser for joining me on a busy working day <laughs> and uh yeah. yeah hopefully we can learn some more from each other in the future excellent that'll be great yeah, thanks thanks for having me it's my pleasure all right everyone thank you i'll be back again soon with another interesting turf graphs topic and i'll sign off now for atc from bangkok i'm michael woods bye bye